Welcome to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. This is Selena Godden and I'm here in my kitchen with Matt Abbott. Hello. <laughs> and me, Amma Rose. And Amma Rose. And uh, we've got a special guest in with us today, real live in the flesh. We've got Nikita Gill. Hi! We're here in my kitchen. This is Roaring Twenties Radio, the September show, the autumn show, Love Conquers All. It's the season of the witch. So let's have a bit of that. <laughs> Oh, 
You're listening to Roaring Twenties Radio, the new Soho radio show for the Twenties, bringing you art, culture, books, poetry and activism. I'm Selena Godden, I'm here with Emma Rose and Matt Abbott and Nikita Gill is live with us here in the kitchen. We've got a packed show for you today. Um, we have some amazing books, amazing arts, amazing conversation. And to kick us off, let's have some roundup from Matt Abbott. What's going on in the world of poetry, Matt? Loads of stuff is going on in the world of poetry. So what I've done is I've tried to just pick five events, five bits of digital content, and then five releases. Otherwise, I'd be here for the full two hours. Um, so with the events, Off the Shelf Festival in Sheffield, which is one of my favourite literary festivals, they're doing a great combination of physical and digital events. That's taking place from the 9th to the 31st of October, which is closer than you'd think. Um, Lem Sissi, Simon Armitage, Helen Moore, and tons of other great poets and writers. Uh, Poetry London have just announced their autumn readings. So they've got Hannah Lowe and Sam Sachs and loads more. That's on the 15th of October and you can get a ticket for £4.90. So you've got a bit of change for some pick and mix. Um, Bad Betty, who are a great uh, independent publisher, um, they've got a launch on the 30th of September. So that's this Wednesday. Uh, Field Notes on Survival. So that's an anthology featuring work by 30 game-changing writers, including Dean Atta, Kat Francois, Sarah Aluko, and tons more writers, and that's free. On the same night, I'm giving you a dilemma here, on the same night, Ollie O'Neill is launching What We Are Given, which is her debut collection on Right Bloody. Uh, So that's also on the 30th. Uh, Support from Joelle Taylor and Rewa Saab, and it's uh, £5 for a ticket. And there's a Q&A as well, uh, which I think sounds like an amazing event. So you've got a tough decision to make there on that night. Um, and then also a little plug for the weekly Nymphs and Thugs Insta sessions every Tuesday from 7.30 till 8. Uh, we have poets from around the world performing very relaxed 30-minute sessions, and it's great good fun. Um, so in terms of content online, stuff that you don't have to watch at a specific time... Um, Jess Green runs a night in Leicester called Find Find the Right Words, and through her Patreon page, every event that should have taken place has been released as a podcast instead. So you can pay £5 a month to have access to these events. Uh, Poets have included Emily Harrison, Cynthia Rodriguez, uh, Elvis McGonagall, uh, Maria Ferguson, and tons more. And that's, like I say, it's just £5 a month, and you've got access to these events. And as well as that, uh, Jess is writing monthly poems, which you can get for £3 a month, and tons of workshops, um, like writing exercises and uh, tutorials ships as well, which I think you can get for £6 a month, so that's all a, a bit of a bargain there. Uh, Louise Fazakali does a monthly poetry mixtape through the Facebook page for The Old Courts, so if you just follow Louise the Poet, you'll see that. Her latest episode included Benjamin Zephaniah, Hafsa Anila Bashir, Jackie Hagan, Sophie Sparham, and tons of others. Um, on BBC Radio London, I mentioned in the last episode... Uh, that Salma and Lionheart have gone to every night during the week. They're doing a daily poem every night, and it's absolutely stunning. It's about quarter past nine, uh, sorry, quarter past 11 in the evening. 
Poems are about a minute and a half, two minutes long, and it's just a perfect thing before you go to bed. And you can get all of those uh, on the listen back feature. So if you just Google for Salma and Lionheart's uh, show on Radio London, you can get those. Um, this Sunday, or, or tomorrow, as most people would say it, uh, Luke Wright is doing a little episode at half past four on BBC Radio 4 from Contain Strong Language up in Barrow in Furness. Um, and Toria Garbutt, who's on Nymphs and Folks, she was on the front cover of a big issue recently. Uh, and you can now read it online for free. It's a stunning article. It's really, really beautiful. Uh, so that's the content roundup. <sighs> right. <laughs> I get really excited about it. I need to try and slow down. Um, so, yeah, slow down. Right. The five releases. Louise Fazakali, who I've just mentioned, she has just published a pamphlet called The Uniform Factory on Verve Poetry Press. A lot of these poems talk about the impact of war on people's families. Uh, Louise's ex-partner was a soldier who served in Afghanistan, and she speaks about the impact of that on her family life. Um, some of those poems are on the audiobook Love is a Battlefield, um, and they've now made it to the page in the form of The Uniform Factory. That's just come out on Verve, so you should definitely buy that. Uh, James McDermott, who he's going to feature in this show later on, uh, he's just published a collection called Manatomy on Burning Eye. Uh, this is a collection of wry, witty and cheeky poems exploring how nature, nurture, pop culture, prejudice and politics shape the identity of a camp gay man. Um, it's been praised by Julian Clary and Stephen Fry and loads more people and it's a, it's a really stunning collection. Joe Carrick Varty um, just published a collection on Outspoken Press, 54 Questions for the Man Who Sold a Shotgun to My Father. Um, the title alone is stunning. Uh, Wayne Holloway Smith said that these poems don't need permission from anybody. Their exceptional and beautiful vulnerability is a permission all of its own. Um, so that really looks like it's worth checking out. Uh, Rick Dove has just published a collection on Burning Eye called Tales from the Other Box. So Rick, as a mixed heritage, biracial, neurodiverse writer and a middle child, uh, has always generally avoided being put in boxes. Uh, and this collection is an attempt to answer the question, where are you from? Um, this isn't a new book, but it's a book that uh, I've seen a lot of people speaking about recently, uh, which is Derek Awusu's uh, book, That Reminds Me, which came out on Murky Books uh, last year, but very recently won the Desmond Elliott Prize. Um, it's a story of a young man from birth to adulthood, told in fragments of memory. Uh, it explores identity, belonging, addiction, sexuality, violence, family and religion. And it's deeply moving and completely original. Um, as well as that, uh, you should know it's National Poetry Day on Thursday, the 1st of October. It's like Christmas for us mm, poets, isn't it? National Poetry Day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and for the first time in a long time, I won't be in, in a classroom, which will be weird. But there'll be loads of stuff online, what, the National Poetry Day. It's always great. Um, I should also mention Maria Ferguson. Her poem, My Letters, was one of the highly commended poems in the Forward Prize recently, which is great news. Uh, Nymphs and Fugs, uh, the record label that I run, last night I found out we've got Arts Council funding for our next project, which Yay! I'm buzzing about. Um, Congratulations. Um, which I'm really happy about. Um, and the last thing I want to mention is a track that we're about to play by Tung Fu. So they're hey. releasing an album soon called Boat Building. This album was three years in the making. Uh, Tung Fu combine music and poetry. It's a stunning project. Um, this album features work from Disraeli, Anthony and Aksuguru, uh, Vanessa Kasuli, Zia Ahmed, Amiri Leon, Joshua Dehen, and loads of artists um, from around the world. The album is out in November, but the first single, Boat Building, featuring Chris Medmond, is out now. Uh, the video's online, you should check it out, but here is the track, enjoy. I read myself to sleep. Phone apocalypse. Late night, blue light, 
newsfeed for scripture. It's hard to rest when everything you read tells you the ship is listening. We're springing leaks but the captain and the crew aren't listening. Smiling while fighting, teeth the colour of ambition. Now even in my dreams I'm rescuing children from floods and liars. Turn the ship around, please turn the ship around. Does anyone else even know how to steer it? Gold yachts, poison plots, treasure chest beaters, clean suits and arms dealer dinners, oil, aftershave, and families torn like cheap meat. Rebels and rubble, power in a bubble, cliches littered like dog turds, strobe light news cycle, squandered blood, auctioned hopes, sinking boats, hymns, songs for the dead, prayers, headlines, hymns, fires, footballers, celebrities in the jungle, gossip on the blind side. If you blink and cover your ears, you'll miss the bodies like flotsam, drowning and burning, falling and running. I mean, the seas rising to meet us, the clocks running down and buck passing, lack like a lock and key, the clocks running down, privilege like a lock and key, the clocks running down and hymns and news speed and news speed, the clocks running down and news speed and news speed, the clocks Running down and you see the Running down and Some of us are promiscuous, but you can't blame us. Since birth, you've told us gay men are not monogamous and love cannot exist between us. Plus, some of us just love penis and want to play and lay with many partners before we say for sure which one stays with us, not because we're homosexual, but because we're homo sapien. And that is usually how humans find who they love.
Some of us are big drinkers, but you can't blame us. We're just drowning out your wicked whispers, and we can't meet a man in the streets like you can. We can't hold hands in the streets like you can. We run the risk of violence from some caveman, so the only safe spaces we can find connection with people like us. The only safe spaces we can show affection to people like us. The only safe spaces we don't face derision simply for being us are in gay pubs and clubs, and that is why we have to learn to like the liquor. Plus, some of us just love getting plastered. And drunk, dancing along to the songs of ABBA. Not because we're homosexual, but because we're homo sapien. And humans like to get pissed and get their groove on. Some of us are anxious. But you can't blame us. Since birth you've told us, you covert cultural child abusers, that we are sinners. Simply for being us. As tots, then teens, we spent ages trying to hide telltale queenie gestures because every day strangers were shaming us. Every day strangers were naming us. Every day strangers were claiming us to be monsters. And we're not anxious because we're homosexual. We're anxious because we're homo sapien. We're all raw, unsure and insecure, on this rock that's racked with war, wondering what life is for, so yes... Some of us are promiscuous, big drinkers, and anxious, but you can't blame us. We just behave like this because of how you shame us. That was a brilliant poem by James McDermott called Promiscuous Anxious Alcoholics from his new collection Monatomy. And before that, you heard the track Boat Building by Tung Fu featuring Chris Redmond, which is available to stream and download in all of the usual places. Uh, so, Selena, you've got a big juicy book list there. Do you want to tell us what's on it? Oh my goodness, books, books, books. I have got so many beautiful books to share with you and I'm just going to leap in now. First of all, this week, congratulations. How to Be More Pirate was published this week with Own It. It's by Sam Conniff and Alexandra Barker. It's the follow-up to Be More Pirate. It's a celebration, an eclectic mix of stories which show actions or shifts in thinking that can have a huge positive impact on society and the world. It's an absolutely beautiful idea and it's for anyone that wants to read positive stories of people that are making a difference and making effects for good. We all could use some hope. It features some poetry in there, Sophia Thacker, and I also lent my poem, um, It's Not Punk to Seek Permission, and changed the title to It's Not Pirate to Seek Permission. Also that came out this week was She Will Soar, out now with Pan Macmillan, edited by Anna Sampson. Now this is a beautiful book, beautiful blue cover. It's classic, well-loved poets, innovative, bold new poetry, stunning collection. It's got Caroline Duffy, Christina Rossetti, Stevie Smith, Emily Dickinson, Mary Jean Chan, Nikita Gill... Holly McNish, Gracie Nichols, and I've got one in there too. Um, so look out for that beautiful blue cover. Thank you to Anna Sampson for including my work. Okay, I'm currently reading the entire life work of Zora Neale Hurston. The book that I'm reading right now is Hitting a Straight Lick with a Crooked Stick. I've got a date that I need you to write down on October the 28th. The British Library, Royal Society of Literature and Black Girls Book Club are all coming together to make a celebration for the work of Zora, her legacy and how she has become one of, if not the most revered and significant black woman writer of the 20th century. The event will be hosted by Black Girls Book Club co-founders Natalie Carter and Melissa Cummings Quarry. 
we are all going to be in conversation with Jackie Kay and Selena Godden. Ah! I'm so honoured to be asked to do this gig. I'm so excited about it. Tickets are up now at the British Library and at the Royal Society of Literature. Look for the name of the event, Ships at a Distance, a celebration of Zora Neale Hurston. That's October the 28th, so that gives you a month to catch up and reread Jonah's Gordvine, Seraph on the Swanee, Moses, Man of the Mountain, and of course, the classic, Their Eyes Were Watching God. It's going to be amazing. Okay, oh, I'm so excited to now talk about this next book. It blew my tiny mind. David Keenan, legend, writes these classic cult, instant cult classic books. David was born in Glasgow and he grew up in West Scotland. He's the author of three novels, the cult classic This Is Memorial Device, which won the London Magazine and Collier Bristol, Bristol Prize for debut fiction in 2018 and was shortlisted for the Gordon Byrne Prize. For the Good Times actually won the Gordon Byrne Prize, but I don't want to talk about those. I want to talk about the new book, Extabeth. It's so creepy and beautiful and dark. And it's out now. No, it's coming out with White Rabbit Books on November the 11th. It's a fire starter of a book. I found it mesmerising. It's delicious, dark and haunting. And we have for you an exclusive reading from the man himself, David Keenan. When I was small and the trees were very high. This was in Russia. My dad was a musician, a famous musician. But he was friends with a musician who was even famouser. I went to his lecture, the famouser musician. He did a lecture. His speciality was moral philosophy. But in this lecture it was different. In this lecture he spoke against morals. I couldn't believe it. My teenage mind was like that. What? He said it was okay to be immoral. That's what he said. In so many words. Words like permission, authority, refusal, autonomy. I remember that one. Belief. That was still key, funnily enough. Afterwards we went with him, my father and I, and we drank vodka. I know it's typical. But we also drank stout. Russian Imperial stout, 12%. That's also typical. I asked him a question. I said to him, you mentioned permission, but who is asking permission and who is giving it? If you know what I mean. I just came right out with it. He said it was a good question. That's a good question, he said. He was from Moscow, originally. Typical. Typical of intellectuals to come from Moscow. Or the Urals. I knew a few from the Urals, but I was too nervous to approach them on the whole. This was different. He was a musician. Somehow that made it different. Softer. I pushed my point. I pursued my question. But at first he just kept looking into thin air. How can you just be bad? I wanted to say. But of course that was illiterate to a Russian. So I phrased that a different way. How can you give yourself permission? I said. I used one of his words strategically. How can you give yourself permission to perform acts that go against yourself? Otherwise, why do you need to give yourself permission to do something if it comes naturally anyway? I said. That's a good question, he said. He said that again. I began to realise that a good question was something that would stop you in your tracks. Well, he said, there are all sorts of things that have given you permission that weren't you, and that you never knew you wanted to do anyway. I know in a way that's elementary philosophy, but at the time it really struck me. Like what? I said. Well, he said, 
Do you think it is beautiful to be on the beach at night beneath the stars? This guy was from Moscow, where a beach with stars is more than a dream. Yes, I said. It's romantic. Who doesn't? Especially in Moscow. All the time my father was just observing me. He was seeing how I was doing up against an intellectual who was famouser than him. What if it's freezing cold at night? The intellectual musician asked me. What if you are standing there shivering and in the distance you can smell sewage? This is a Russian beach, I said. For sure. It's still a beach under the stars, I said. Nothing can change that. What if I told you someone was murdered there? They said. I didn't see that coming. It's a beach in the dark, he said. You know nothing.
stretched straight at the skate park she leans to your shoulders smashed shards shattered round air bubbled feet your painless kneecap and trackies she pale midriff bare a pair a menace stare, a first love affair. You whip her hair with a whisper in reflective shades. Mad dog halcyon days, her eyelashes coy, heavy, with nylon glue and underage drinking nonchalance. I gaze on old and wearied, a voyeur lost, a socially distant ghost, haunting a bubble household, empty as a Zoom drinking session. You are both beautiful, thrown into youth, magnetic and unafraid of truth. I see future in you and hope your humanity grows in all outlying cracks. Hi, welcome back to Roaring Twenties Radio. You've just heard an excerpt from Exterbirth by David Keenan, Cold Little Heart by Mercury Music Prize winner Michael Kiwanuka, and um, Belfast by Victoria McNulty. I think, actually, what we've got coming up now is more books from Selena Godden. It's been such a busy time for publishing, um, but the next book that I want to highlight is the fantastic supporting cast by the legendary Kit Dual. Kit is Irish Caribbean like me, so I feel very like she's kind of like a sister to me. Um, she was brought up in the Irish community of Birmingham. Her debut novel, My Name is Leon, is phenomenal. I enjoyed it so much. It's an international bestseller and was shortlisted for the Costa and longlisted for the Desmond Elliott Prize. And it won the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year Award. Her second novel, The Trick to Time, was longlisted for the Women's Prize and her young adult novel, Becoming Dina, is shortlisted for the Carnegie Clip Award in 2020. She also crowdfunded and edited Common People, um, which was a collection of essays and stories and memoirs, which was published by Unbound, which is a brilliant book. But I want to talk about Kit's latest work, Supporting Cast. It's just been published by Penguin. This is a collection of stories of everyday lives that will resonate and move you. I really enjoyed the audiobook of this one. Um, it was fantastic um, to sort of just be cooking and listening to all these stories. Um, they're played by different actors on the audiobook. It's a beautiful listen. Each piece is perfectly captures the dark and light of life. And here we have an exclusive snippet from supporting cast. Um, and here we go, Kit Dewar. It's 47 minutes from Leighton Buzzard to Luton on the number 136. I've got myself a neat perch. Top deck. Front. New estate off to the left. Biscuit factory to the right. It'll be all green soon. Fields and trees for miles and miles. And at the rate this bus is rattling along, I'm going to be late on top of everything else. And it stinks. Old leather. Old tobacco. Old sweat. Old perfume. Old people. The bus conductor gave me the once over when I got on. I know what he's thinking. Pretty girl, but she's had her thirtieth birthday about five times in a row. He's seen a good silk headscarf from Bassett's, a wool coat with a penny collar, lovely pair of patent kitten heels, and a clasp-top handbag, and he's thinking, Vogue Road. When he comes to collect my fare, he'll look down at me, and he'll see the lines around my eyes, 
the puffiness you always get if you've been crying in the night, and he'll think, no, hangover square. He'd be right. Should have bought fags at the newsagent. I've only got eight. Not enough for this journey, and then an hour with that solicitor. A woman solicitor, they said on the phone. You wouldn't credit it, would you? Never expected that. Not in Bedfordshire, at any rate. Maybe you get more sympathy with a woman. Maybe that's why she went into divorce law. Maybe, when she was at university, she had half an eye on her boyfriend, imagined him doing the dirty on her one day, and she thought to herself, I'll make sure I know what's what when the time comes. Because the time always comes. Going to dye my hair on Saturday? I can do it myself for half the price of Diane's. Fair enough, it takes a bit longer, and you have to make sure you get someone to help you with the back, but Armo will do that. She'll be quick about it as well, because she can't stand the smell of dye when she's expecting. Dye, bleach, window cleaner, vinegar, lemons, nutmeg and tomato soup. What they've got in common, God knows, but it was the same last time, except she added shoe polish and lavender to the mix. Oh, it's never cake and biscuits, is it, Sylve? She says, and puts both hands on her backside. Then Roy comes in and slips his hands round any bit of waste he can find and kisses her, because Roy don't see and Roy don't care. I thought it would rain today. Rain and hail and lightning. Never expected a sunny day and blossom on the trees. I've got my marriage certificate and birth certificate, mine and his. I've got a note of the date he left, and I've brought cash if she wants paying up front. Mo told me to just stick to the facts. I'm your sister, Sylve, she said. You moan to me and you cry to me, and we can go over it as many times as you like because that's my job. But you're paying by the hour, so stick to the facts. Easy for her to say, with Roy as dotty about her now as he was ten years ago. Worse, maybe. I was seventeen, and Armo was eighteen. There we were in the majestic ballroom, nearly Christmas. Big band. It was me Roy asked to dance first. Me. Brian was stood behind him, tapping his foot to the music, with his hands in his pockets. So I had a dance with Roy, and then he asked Armo. So Brian had no choice but to ask me. Of course, soon as we were on the dance floor, it was a done deal. I mean, the pair of us looked like bloody film stars, and he didn't make a move I couldn't follow. In five minutes, there was only the two of us out there. It's like we'd been rehearsing somewhere, rehearsing for this moment. Sylvia and Brian, stars of tomorrow. People talked about us for months. I used to imagine articles in the paper about how we met that night and how we danced in the middle of a clapping circle and how the sweat made my dress cling, how our hands were so slippery we could hardly hold on. But he spun me round and caught me again like he'd never let me go. I trusted him fell right back towards the dance floor knowing he'd be there. 
I wrote all these articles in my head because I thought, I really, really thought that one day someone would ask me about it because we'd be famous and a journalist would take his pad out and say, how did you two meet? And I'd have something already prepared. I was right, sort of. We did have a man from the Leighton Examiner asking questions because in the end it was a double wedding. Two sisters marrying two brothers. But it was Roy did all the talking and obviously it was about him and Mo. Brian was drunk. Overdose of the ovation Make a stand for the whole nation Dressing room like the old Bailey Hundred and one dogs and they ain't donations Knock it on, take your money like a donation But wipe the fika, that's the morals we was all raised with Screwface can't save faces, they gon' be saving graces At least they were saving papers, but there ain't no safe haven If they can spray paint, nigga run LeBron James crypt That means a black card ain't shit when that's the shade of faces So basically we're contakentes in some Cuban links The Balenciagas didn't blend us in We're here now, we're to God's gift They should've never let us in the kingdom And now I bet my brothers to my last breath the left hand has seen me on the pavement Ever seen me on the pavement Face on the floor, would you help a brother change it? Circumstances hurt the hardest, ballers never made it Black pitch famous So east side like Mr. Fucking Avis You will never scooby if I scoop up something famous And you won't catch me with Julie and Mabedas Yeah, man, I'm real maders, man, don't worry about no pagans If you ain't got above 80, don't worry about my raters You ain't fucking got the faintest Man, don't show off it just to show them and them they can make it Coming from the city where the slippery stuff stinks live A village has to raise these Young kings and queens to Leave their greatness, fed up with police stations I be parading cause will I be mistaken Just cause I be the latest while these slipedos raping Big man like you, rogues and a big boy black suit And a gangster platoon, what's a man supposed to do? We've complained to the police about the police and nothing's been done We've complained to judges about judges and nothing's been done Now it's time to do something ourselves In love and war All is fair where I'm from the week won't last A week in shoes like car once When it rains it pours Hoodies all summer Cause teardrops from the sky Only seem to fall on you and I Used to do race for Ingrid Wait for fit envelope with 80 quids in I paid my dues, they pay me plenty And me can holler on the phone talking Sultry, the verse limited tax No way to swerve too legit, that's Grown paper burks in the crib, facts No wasted burnt energies, facts No hate to serve enemies, rats Gold taste and curse, devil rig crack Cocaine and turf penalties, flats Old names that curb legendary rash No chain but shirt, still a G, lads No game or learnt chivalry, snaps No faces, birds in the bees, mass Curate and her infancy, sad Those days concerned sisters be trapped Most days absurd, bigotry, black no days off work, literally raps No way, that's verse liberty Shoebox memories Reebok workouts and dungarees We used to dream of the most frivolous of things Then we bought the most ridiculous of rings Now we just trying to keep our virgins out the bin Side talk, everyone's a guide Till a guy walks in Louder crabs in a barrel and survival team We could all go clear Who to us musical chairs? There's enough seats for everybody, mate 
Two of them we can't reach nowhere. Trust. So we just heard an exclusive clip from Kit DeWell's latest book and we also heard Kano Teardrops. I'm just going to wind up with a few more books for your on my reading pile. I'd like you to look out for Moksha, Warrior Beings, Raven Lalani Luster, coming soon with Picador. The Gallic Press are putting out some amazing new uh, series. It's called the New Revolutionary Women series. Um, the two that I've got on my pile right now, The Woman of the Wolf and Other Stories and Three Rival Sisters. So look out for that. These books are really intriguing me. I'm excited also about Safia Sinclair's Hannibal and Rachel Long's My Darling from the Lions, both out now with Picador. Coming soon, we've got Leona Ross, One Sky Day, coming soon with People Tree Press. And hopefully we're going to have him in the studio, in the studio, in the kitchen <laughs> next month. Inua Elam's The Actual is out on October the 5th. Um, so that's around National Poetry Day. I hope to feature Inua in the October episode. Um, it looks like a beautiful book. Um, if you have a look, if you follow Inua, and love Inua's work I know you're going to find this work moving I'm already I just think the titles alone of the poems are just stunning um, so look out for the actual penned in the margins Inua Elohim's out on October the 5th Okay, sticking with poetry, I'm very excited about the new work coming from Helen Calcutt, on, um, published by Verve. It's a new pamphlet called Somehow. I adore Helen's poetry. We met when we um, worked together when she edited the anthology 84, which was an anthology of grief and survival. Helen's latest work is highly accomplished set of poems also on themes of, of guilt, grief and loss. I find her work resilient. Um, and she's got such a beautiful voice. Um, it's published by Verve um, this month. It's out now. And she's exclusively um, recorded us a poem and sent it in. So please uh, give it up for Helen Calcutt. City Birds You hardly notice at first. One bird, then another, singing across languid knots of trees gilt with blossom. It grows with the emptiness of streets. The lamps are muted, blind yet listening, and even that woman in the park fucking her man hears the call, drawn like a thread through the needle of their throats, the city bird song. Always at this time, 
The bus stops are full of people waiting to be taken to their gates. Eyes behind glass and hands in their pockets, swaying with the dusk that halos their jackets. I pray for their angelic shuffling. My bus arrives, but I don't get on. I want to stare at my feet while the birds thrill me and think of that free woman having sex, all that pleasure she'll have among the ferns and ash. I want to know, want to know how hard and how beautiful the collapse of their bodies when it's done. Does he hold her, limp? Or does she draw away over him and stand while the birds tremble sweetly over his finishing? Does she see the bus glide up over the hill? Just as I've watched it go, wondering if that lovely woman has come between her legs and what it feels like with these first stars and the dusk in its silence. The loaming loveliness, this fall-away quietness. I want to lie down here, sleep. I want a stranger to part the wings of my coat, to lift these hips and let the good grace of sadness really enter me. Finally, the birds might stop. I might sing in their place, I might weep, I might bleed, I might feel something.
in these two really challenging and unique professions you know as an artist and as a poet and I know you as both and um and I wondered how did that all unfold um well I think you know I was using I was I went to art school but I was using language in my work from you know right from the beginning so I was always interested in words and um like quite often as a function of the audio in the work as much as anything um and and like as I as I developed my practice I became more and more interested in that and wanted to kind of understand it in terms of actually um a more literary background which I hadn't had myself um and so um I had some training then in literature and began reading a lot of poetry I found really poetry was the thing that excited me the most I guess it was the closest in so many ways to an artistic practice um, in terms of its like upsetting of um, structures and expectations um, and like narrative form and um, and then and then that kind of developed almost developed uh, of its own yeah. sort of, of its own volition in a way like it wasn't my intention to start writing poetry it just was something that kind of happened alongside my art practice and like I said I was only really doing it for it to feed back into my visual practice I never really intended it to be um, a medium in its own right that I would pursue but I became so in love with it I guess that um yeah that kind of took on its own life as a parallel practice yeah I can um I just I remember walking I've got this really specific memory of walking of being it sounds so kind of art world and unlike things are at the moment, I remember walking into your work at the Istanbul Biennial and seeing it. Oh, yeah. And just being completely blown away by it, just with this kind of amazing combination. And so was everybody else, to be fair. Like, this amazing combination of really just, it's just, the way you talk about upsetting structures really sits well with my perception of your work because it just is so surprising but it's but it's not kind of um aggressive it, you know you know what I mean yeah I mean I think uh you know I often think art is like what you can get away with and <laughs> so I think on some level I'm often trying to kind of do one thing while get away with while getting away with doing something else so perhaps what you see on the surface is just a fraction of what's really going on. So there may be like a certain things that I will place there deliberately to kind of um, make it palatable or to want you to lean into it. But then there may be something else that's happening or quite often is something else that's happening as a counterpoint to that, which maybe does have a slightly harder edge or is coming from a slightly different position or a very different position sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's a tone that's being being set and then upset quite often yeah and that's a you know it's a very difficult thing to do to keep something in the balance so to speak and um but then and um i always and what i love and for those what well, those reasons that i really love that you've made so much public art and i really love your work with art on the underground i mean it's a gloucester road um work and the one at Bethnal Green is just so oh, thank you it's just brilliant because I think in a way sometimes these things can kind of lull you a little bit but your work does not do that it's really 
imaginative and it it's kind of I don't know I daydream on the tube a lot I don't know if you do the same so it's kind of I day, daydream constantly everywhere so it just helps it just kind of feels like it's kind of part it's a wonderful window into your subconscious but I feel also that maybe it's quite unusual for public art it's kind of broken the mold for public art in a way it's um more it's kind of there's something different about it did you always want to make art in the public sphere no it's um it's, it's come about quite tangentially again really it was um i mean i i was making work of a certain scale and um and then i think perhaps i mean then there were probably other factors as well but i'm sure the scale was one thing that meant some people were approaching me to then start making work in the public realm because obviously scale is often so important in that in, in these contexts um and of course once you're in the public realm you're competing against so many other um, demands on attention and one of those is you know advertising and so to put something in the tube that somehow doesn't look like advertising yet shares the same space as advertising so you know using the, the posters on the on the underground, on the escalators, um, or, you know, like taking up the, the whole platform, which previously had been used, or, you know, the other platforms on Gloucester Road Station are used for, predominantly for advertising. And yeah. um, so somehow to do something that is so radically different to those things, but maybe also isn't, it still has a connection to them, but also is taking them somewhere radically different so that you know <laughs> that what you're seeing isn't just part of the kind of the generic landscape of the underground network oh no it's uh, i think you you're certainly aware of that for sure um, <laughs> but and um moving on to your uh your latest public artwork which i think everybody's known about everybody's heard about by now your fourth plinth commission at the end could you tell me a bit about this work for those everybody's seen it but just to remind you it's an ice cream cone with a cherry on top with a drone and a fly on it but um yeah so um what could you talk me through that work a little bit i feel like people have had wildly differing reactions which is what you want i think you know with a big with a fourth plinth commission that's kind of you don't want it to just sit there but um what were you what were you thinking when you put that together um, well, this is something I've, I've talked about quite a lot, so forgive me if it's just oh, like I'm repeating previous things I said, but, um, so I was invited to make a proposal for the 14th at the end of 2016, and obviously the end of 2016 was, you know, like following the, um, Brexit vote in the UK, and there were a lot of, um, you know, there was a lot of right-wing kind of, um, political parties that were suddenly on the rise across Europe more broadly and further afield and obviously you know Trump was running for election in the states and and it just felt like a, a point at which not that everything as we knew it was changing but more that like actually everything that we uh, were like pretending not to know was suddenly exposed so mm. or like you know certain certain people among you know amongst us who were, who were worried about those things oh totally it was like um, a veil was lifted right yeah which is also what's happened during the pandemic isn't it is that suddenly all the the power and structures and the inequalities on which our entire society is founded have been revealed 
Mm. Um, you know, and it takes sometimes takes something catastrophic. And and for me, those events were catastrophic. Um, and it's not like we didn't know those problems were there, but suddenly they were like unavoidable. You know, and and, and I'm interested in dealing with those things that can't be ignored. And it felt for me like these were things that couldn't be ignored. And but I didn't want to. I'm not that interested in, in in addressing those things head on. But it was more like to go back to the thing I said earlier about setting a tone, I guess. And mm. um, you know, and I've talked about that sculpture in terms of hubris. You know, about pride and um, collapse. Mm. And it felt very much that we were on the brink of something. And you know, even more so now to some extent. So the cream is very much for me this like nutritionally devoid but slightly celebratory substance you know it's like taking over the plinth it's spilling over it it's very much kind of in conversation with the the statues of warfare Mm. around it and the glorification of warfare and something that's like a radically different Mm. uh kind of a much more unstable substance or uh, unstable in a different way because obviously warfare is also unstable um but in a very different way um and, you know, even thinking about the, the size and the height of the cherry stalk, that maybe it would rival those things around it. Mm. The drone, obviously, you know, is, is a nod to those statues of warfare, but also the use of drones more broadly in, you know, surveillance culture and flies being attracted to um, things that are rotting yes. um, or on the verge of, uh, yeah, degradation. And... Um, and, you know, also our relationship to other forms of animal life, which is a sort of recurring interest of mine, preoccupation. Mm. And, you know, cream being obviously coming from cows generally and the fly being, you know, somehow the drone being like modelled on that kind of flying creature. So these kind of alien life forms by which we're surrounded, but again, which it's easy to kind of uh, overlook. Um, and so all of these things we're feeding into it. You know, there's, there's often like... Uh, it's there's a moment where a lot of things come together for me when I'm making a work so I can have a lot of ideas I'm holding on to simultaneously and quite often there's a lot of cognitive dissonance and then it's finding a way to manifest those things physically um yeah yeah. and then obviously the plinths going up now just um brings out all of those resonances in in different ways heightens many of them yeah, and I often think of your work as be of having an immersive quality to it, and this work does in a way because you can go to a site, can't you? And you can watch the drone footage from the sculpture, and there's yeah. also there's an audio component to the work, which is the poem Volta. Could you tell me a bit about that, please? Yeah, so um, so like you said, the drone is transmitting a live feed of the area around it. So when you're on Trafalgar Square, you can kind of become a part of the work. And A, a you can access the sculpture's perspective on the square, but also there's like a site around it in which you can inhabit the site of the sculpture and you can see yourself back from the perspective of the sculpture. So I guess like you say, there's, there's that element of, um, well, participation and implication and, um, you know, uh, animation and also video which is a really important part of my work moving image yes and um, so even though it's a static sculpture it still has all these mobile elements as part of it yeah, and you've um, sorry i was just going to say about about volta so the accompanying work which came about much more recently so that's really just been made in like the last month actually and um, you know, when we, we had a lot of discussion before launching the plinth about when was the right time to launch it, given everything that was happening, and was it appropriate to launch it at this moment, and with everything that was going on, and 
and I felt quite strongly like I wanted to do something else that was like I said I that I came up with the idea for that work in 2016 and I wanted to do something that was responding to how I was feeling in this political moment. I know, um, so much has changed or so, and so much is in a kind of temporary, what feels like a temporary state. Yeah, and then at the same time, it's like a bit like we said earlier, it's like a heightening of everything that was already there or it's like, you know, ripping off the lid of all of the inequalities in just a very brutal way, isn't it? And, um, you know, obviously with... And it's so like, I wanted to do something that, yeah, that kind of took that into account. And obviously with the, the, the work on the plinth being called The End, there was the opportunity to say, you know, maybe if the pandemic is the end of something or could be the end of some things in a good way, you know, like thinking of all the Black Lives Matter protests and, you know, that, that for a moment at least, and who knows how long it will last, but it felt like there was some heat happening and things were beginning to change and that there could be some structural change yes. um, that I personally would really like to see. And so in the end, there is also the possibility for some kind of radical shift as well, potentially. And, and I wanted to make a work that reflected that note of, of hope, like a cautious hope as well. And so that's where the new audio collage comes in. Yeah, and it's um, wonderful. And it references everything that we've been experiencing this summer. It's, it's a really wonderful... Work. Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think... Oh, bondage! Up yours! One, two, three, four!
Um, Oli Basquiano, welcome to Roaring Twenties Radio. Thank you. Um, just by way of introduction, Oli Basquiano is a very experienced journalist, editor at Larger Art Review, who con- contributes to The Guardian, The Telegraph, The National, BBC Radio 4, TLS, The Spectator, Private Eye, and many, many more. The list goes on. <laughs> yeah, it's big. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh... Exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to do it though, haven't we? But ha- Absolutely, exactly. It's the uh, the um, uh, the uh, worries of being a freelance writer. Yeah, exactly. But I um, was wondering if, like, how has your year been? Like, it's a funny old year as a freelancer. It has. I'm quite in a privileged position in many ways because I, uh, as editor at Larger Art Review, so I have a, a nice. Uh, stable um, gig there, uh, but then, um, but it's also been like, yeah, you know, ups and downs in terms of freelancing and writing, especially when you're writing about art, because you know there hasn't been that much art about for yeah. about five months of it. <laughs> exactly, and then also you travel quite a lot. I mean, you cover South America as well, Brazil specifically. Yeah, so half the year I, um, or roughly half the year I, I, I live in Sao Paulo. And um, I was supposed to be there uh, uh, about, uh, like all of us, I I perhaps didn't quite uh, uh, realise the the gravity of uh, uh, what was happening and assumed I was getting on a flight until a week uh, before (laughs) I was supposed to be there and then realised that that probably wasn't going to happen. But yeah, yeah, this is the longest time I think I've been grounded for... Uh, like a decade or something. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been quite nice in many ways. Also, uh, I didn't realise I'd miss Pratt at Gatwick quite so much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just that feeling of like you just think it's you feel like it's coming. That urge to escape. I don't know for me. Oh, totally, anyway. totally. Uh, I'm going back to Sao Paulo uh, in about two weeks, actually. Oh, that's exciting because there's been so much yeah. happening over in Brazil, good and bad. <laughs> Right, yeah. I mean, the situation, the COVID situation there is uh, pretty uh, grim, mm. or has been pretty grim. And uh, Bolsonaro is obviously uh, the, the worst person in the world. to be leading. <laughs> yeah, in the world, full stop. Uh, <laughs> and certainly the worst person to be leading for a pandemic. Um, luckily, the, I mean, it's a federal system, so uh, states, the individual states, have a huge amount of autonomy. So, um, although many of the state governors aren't the best people politically either. Most of them uh, have been able to enact their own lockdowns. So um, that that certainly uh, made the situation is bad, but it possibly could have been a lot worse if, um, you know, Bolsonaro had a far more autonomy. Yeah, and then just moving on to kind of like arts cuts, we were all kind of, I don't know, I don't, I think I kind of, I've given up slightly, but a lot of people were awaiting for Rishi to announce some more money or some art specific funding. And that didn't come. And it kind of plays into the article that you wrote about for The Spectator about the South Bank Centre and about kind of the long term mismanagement there, but then also how the structure of the funding like pre and post pandemic is is really sending it into a tailspin right so i mean i think the pandemic uh and the financial fallout of the pandemic uh i mean obviously it's going to be tough but every organization arts or otherwise and every individual 
um, and that, that that's you know unavoidable. Um, but it certainly um, uh, made a clear focus which organisations are better prepared or uh, have been managed better. Um, and uh, you know, if you look at the institutions across Britain and across London, um, the uh, all of them have been affected and all of them are having to make job cuts but what struck me as I was sort of looking you know just sort of as a, a casually struck me was I couldn't work out why South Bank the South Bank Centre was in such a bad problem mm. um, or such bad difficulty you know they're, they're having to let go of a third of their staff um, you know they so management out a, a statement saying the best case scenario uh, was ending the financial year with a five million loss but that was having exhausted all their reserves used four million from the furlough scheme and gobbled up all of the arts council grant um, and keeping the 21 acre site other than the hayward gallery closed until uh, uh until may um so you know that's pretty drastic i mean but certainly, the you know the Tate have financial problems. The Royal Academy have financial problems, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but that they are open and they are able to open. Yeah. And uh, they are getting you know cutting stuff. Tate are cutting, uh, you know, people from Tate Commercial, which is the retail and restaurant uh, wings, mm. um, which is which is a tragedy and bad. But you you can see the logic of it in as much as obviously if our people aren't using the restaurant there'll be yet less staff yeah. not to necessarily you know defend cutting the jobs because I feel that the take can do better in that uh, that regard but getting back to the South Bank it, it just uh, it, basically the, the story for the spectator came about because I was just perplexed why why was it so out of kilter with the rest of um, organisations and um, basically you know the the buildings uh, of the arts of the um, South Bank Centre, the site is owned by the Arts Council oh. uh, historically. So yeah, that they are the owners of that, um, and then obviously they're leased on a very long-term basis by the South Bank. So they're paying um, themselves in a way with the grant. It, other than the fact that their annual Arts Council grant. Uh, which is the second biggest Arts Council grant after the Royal Opera House, cannot be used for anything other than programming. Oh. So, what? So <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, it's a very perplexing situation in as much as the Arts Council owns the site, they give them a grant, but they can't use the grant to pay the Arts Council uh, or, or pay to upkeep the site. So basically, any upkeep of the uh, that... I mean, I'm sorry, you know... It's South Bank Centre. I'm sure most of the listeners have been there. Uh, yeah, it's a huge, brutalist site, about. isn't it? It's enormous, though, and it must require yeah, a huge amount of upkeep. It's right. It's 21 acres of city, really. <laughs> like, I mean, it's like a huge length of the river. Um, uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, that. So, to, you know, in many ways, to be fair to the management, they're in a very. Uh, bad uh, structural situation however um they've only exasperated that by sort of like generations of conservative 
uh, mostly conservative uh, managerial um, outlook. Yeah. Um, there's been very little creativity in terms of that. Uh, and so that's what I, you know, that's what I wanted to get across. Um, so basically, the, the 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 situation they find themselves in, in order to do a refurbishment, which they did five years ago, um, and that cost thirty five million. They took out commercial loans. Um, uh, they took out seven million from Lloyd's and fifteen point one from Allied Irish Bank. Oh my um, god! Yeah. So the. Um, so the, uh, the extension of the Royal Festival Hall um, was used uh, to, as, a, as an asset against borrowing one of them, uh, the 15.1 That's million. That's crazy. Right. So right, it could end exactly. up falling into the hands of the Allied Bank. Potentially. So the, that extension basically was uh, funded by a Royal Development, uh, London Development Agency grant. Um, but because the extension is the one building that the South Bank Centre itself owns, because obviously they can't borrow off the building, the historic buildings, because mm. they're not owned by them, um, uh, they were able to use that as uh, as an asset. So yeah, that 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 could potentially fall into uh, the hands of Allied Irish. Now the other seven million loan was um, used as a, was borrowed off the back of future income from the restaurants and shops. So we're talking about if you walk along the river, there's that huge sort of like glass parade of restaurants. What's really striking to me is every time I walk along the river, you go, say you're walking from, you know, the Tate into over to Waterloo Bridge, you pass the NFT where there's those lovely bookstalls outside yeah. and there's a relative quiet and there's a restaurant and there's a bar and it's quite nice and sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, quite relaxed space, I think. Like, And then you put, put us into the South Bank Centre with this sort of cacophony of sort of donut stalls and, uh, <laughs> and sort of uh, chain <laughs> burger restaurants and, you know, everything. And, like, that, you know, I've seen, like, I don't know. AstroTurf and strange things right, like Astro that. AstroTurf play zones and things. <laughs> you know, like, uh, and it's just like, what, what, how is, you know, the, the difference is so marked going from the NFT, the National Film Theatre, onto the South Bank Centre property. Um, and, uh, and you can see that, that basically that's the crux of the South Bank's outlook for the past, you know, Way before the pandemic, way you know, way before the um, the, the refurbishment. In fact. But it doesn't really. Um, it's not really in keeping with what we experience at the South Bank Centre, is it? We have the Haywood Gallery, we have Queen Elizabeth Hall, which I, you know, is classical music. It's one of the only places you can uh -huh. see things like quartets and experimental uh -huh. classical and dance. I mean, the program feel like they've had some quite good contemporary dance places there aren't really many places in london where you can put that kind of event on in the first place so it's kind of like you've got this massive commercial long view paired with this actually shrinking platform for maybe more niche kind of areas of the right. arts and including absolutely yeah and even like the the you know the the, the what what is striking or the most depressing in many ways 
is you know to compare this um, virulently commercial outlook uh, to uh, the you know the founding uh, history of the South Bank. You know, it was founded in undermining of it basically long-term undermining of that original conception of um the place and what it was meant to be right but i feel like i should say yeah but i feel like i should say i'm sitting with poets i'm sitting with three poets (laughs) (laughs) and i think one of the things that came out of the article was this undermining specifically of the poetry library which i think exemplifies what you've been saying it's free poetry doesn't make any money but it you know we've got this kind of archive there that's free that's easy to access and um you know absolutely so i mean just i mean just to you know just finish the uh yeah. the, the nuts part of it was that the um basically to, it doesn't even make any good business sense these sort of like this virulently commercial outlook because during the pandemic none of the, the restaurants basically refused to pay their rent because they're struggling as well or whatever but, uh, and they're in a more powerful position. Basically, South Bank needs them more than, they've got themselves in a position where the South Bank needs the restaurant chains more than the restaurant chains need the South Bank. So none of that rent was coming in. They're struggling to find their grant. And as a consequence, places like the Poetry Library, which, as you say, is uh, uh, you know, one of the biggest collections of poet, modern poetry um, in the world, I think, um, and the poets will definitely be able to correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it is but, one of the um, biggest, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's just Matt there. Yeah, and it's like, is it under threat? And it's sort of, in the article, I think you say 70% of staff, and I think we think here that that's leaving about three people actually right, working yeah. there. No, like, I mean, like, it was, I mean, as you can imagine, the, the poetry library, we didn't have a vast <laughs> collection of people uh, manning it. But they, it, it, it was sizable and certainly a resource and certainly like an important aspect and you know I talked to people who told me you know stories about them and I'm sure you guys have the same of like going there when uh, they were young and were encouraged by the librarians to pick out stuff or you know that they weren't brought up amongst poetry or whatever uh, and you know the, those librarians were there encouraging them or just being a welcoming face, really, yeah. to, um, you know, encourage them to read poetry and what have you. 
um, and now you know they, they they're making they they write their own. Um, yes. So you know to lose that expertise uh, is you know it's obviously uh, massively tragic. It's also the fact that it's free as well because poetry is so expensive. I mean it's not obviously it's ten pounds for a collection and that's value for money. But I, I'd buy five poetry books a week if I could. So being able to go to the poetry library and take out a collection that you might be taking a chance on. Uh, for research purposes or whatever, um, it's it's so valuable for it being free of charge for a lot of working class people or people on lower incomes. It's it's very very important to make poetry accessible. Absolutely, and you know, uh, as, um, as I'm sure you guys know, and uh, it's no secret, um, you know, being a poet is probably not the most financially secure of uh, <laughs> professions. Um, <laughs> So, you know, having that resource, having that space to be able to, you know, people coming in, and now, you know, that, that, that's been wrecked, really. You know, I mean, the collection is there, and the, the existing staff, I'm sure, will do, you know, uh, their very best, but, like, 70% exactly it doesn't make any you know. sense and I think Matt was saying earlier he goes once a month Nikita Gill who's sitting next to me she also uses it a lot these are and Selena who sat with also here I mean, the thing that's uh, coming to my mind is outspoken press independent publishers they were running a regular event there uh, on the south bank and that was a wonderful thing to see poetry in the queen elizabeth hall in that great stage in that great room sort of taking something that we see as you know normally in a pub you know a room above a pub actually being treated in that beautiful way with beautiful sound and lighting and a big stage and taking poetry to that next level and so it's been very sad to see to see that sort of go as well um yeah that's that's with my and I think, you know, the, the South Island have said when they do reopen, if they reopen, and I do think that there is an if there, you know, uh, they have been able to, they say they've been able to make their loan repayment so far, um, but, you know, the, the, it, is, it is a very serious situation. There. Yeah. Um, when they do reopen, they say that uh, 90% of their activities will be now the way it's termed is commercial activities which or private hire activities now oh. there is a slight um, to, to slightly uh, there's a subtlety in that in as much as um, private hire isn't all corporate events or something uh, so I know the Meltdown Festival for example is a private hire event so it's not all non-creative events but that basically means that 90% are commercially driven events yeah. uh, that make commercial uh, sense, i.e. the Meltdown Festival, which is great, but, you know, is, is a... It, is a you know, it is a, what it is. is it's a, it's yeah. pop music at the end of the day. And, um... Right, it's, it's pop music. It, it, it's probably going to, you know, there's a certain guarantee of return there. Um, whereas... Uh, you know, the self-initiated, the small, the niche, the thing that probably won't make a profit. Yeah. Is, um, uh, won't be that, basically. Yeah. Like, or there'll be 10%, which is 
tiny. Oh yeah, that is tiny, and it's kind of what all my kind of wonderful experiences of the South Bank Centre are. Those things that might be because I'm a obtuse yeah. human, but it, but it's also <laughs> I think it's because it's where you go. But no, but yeah, yeah. But thank you so so much for coming on and talking to us about that and just breaking it all down. I think it's so important to spread that message and create awareness around that story, so people know and can support where possible. Mm-hmm. Thank um, you. Well, yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, I, I, like, I, the, the article, like, I, I mean, I'm sure it didn't make the South Bank management particularly happy. I'm but, sure it you didn't. Know, I, I, I genuinely, like, wish the South Bank well because, uh, you know, like all of us, I love it a lot. Um, you know, and. Uh, well, it's um, tough love sometimes uh, yeah. is required. Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's what friends do. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But thanks so much, Ollie. I'll hopefully see you soon at some point in the future. Um, exactly, when, yeah. when we're allowed out. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, take care. Thanks, Ollie. Thank you. Thank you, Ollie. Bye. Bye. Okay, so now I'm going to play you two recordings of some poems, uh, both of which have come through Instagram in some way or another. So the first one is a live performance by Jasmine Gardosi. This was in one of our Insta sessions on the Nymphs and Thugs account, and it's a beatbox poem. This was a world premiere of a beatbox poem. It's an incredibly moving piece. Um, it speaks for itself. I'll, I'll let you enjoy it. Um, Jasmine is one of my favourite poets, and I'm really, really pleased that she did this. Um, and then following that, I have a poem by an, a poet in Illinois called Nierika Manda. Um, Nierika submitted this because we share little excerpts on our feed. Um, she wasn't able to do an Insta session, so I asked her to record the poem. And it's a really, really beautiful piece about her mother and her heritage uh, through food. So we've got Jasmine Gardosi, followed by Nierika Manda. This is for the poets. Or anyone who's had to stand up and speak for the first time. And then every time after that, you know what happens. The way our, the way our, the way our pulse is booming too loud and the panic is pounding our heads and the blood is brushing our face. And our body has bottled to still, and our how our how our being is blocked by our fear, and they both just blend into one, and the pumping buries our voice, heartbeat just blurs over all. It's a it's a it's a pistol backfired, bashed up button, bursting piper, broken buzzer, blood cells bounce from pulse to pulse and push the bass like pasta parcel, busy body, brains are bust our belly, boiling black and blue, bolting back the pizza block is blitzing blues all blown apart. We people, we problems, we babble like babies till purple, then play back the blabber, then blubber at bumbles, we purse prime and bubble and pull up like paper, we're paupers on blood pressure, pushed in the Like, what are we more of? Our thoughts or our awkwardness? Like, 
Why talk if we're so mortified? When all we get is cortisol and shorter lives. Like, so hard to tell where your ambition starts when there's no end to that ammunition heart of... But we can. We can. We can be them both, though, right? We can be the panic and be the passion. We can bring our baggage and bring our best still. Be the broken and be the breakthrough. Be the bullied, then bite the bullets. Embrace the beat, play the beat. Be the beaten and then be the beat. Beat the bar and then be the bar. Be the battlefield, breathe them broader. We big bangs, we bagpipes, we boom boxes, blueprints, we pupils of purpose, we black belts in backbone. Be berserk, be bloody, bombard, perplex. Be bold, be bear, be boss, be bitch, be proof, be prone, be proud, be pro, be beast, be boast, be pissed, be pushed, be better. Be of chai tea lattes and naan breads. Amma never lets me forget that one day in preschool when I asked for grilled cheese instead of roti and dal makhani because I wanted to smell like vanilla or cotton candy smell like anything but curry. Now I make my own dinners, most of the time just boiled bland salted vegetables or stale tea bags in a Starbucks cup. But from time to time I'll have Amma guide my fingers through my spice cabinet, teaching me how to recreate recipes that I was once ashamed of. How much do I add? I ask. She says you'll know when it's enough. You'll know in your core when the aroma of your food fills you up like the warmth of your people. You'll know when I say that it's not your fault that I raised you in a land that taught you to be ashamed of your own mother. You'll understand now when I say that the irony of it all is that they invaded our soil for our spices and our dyes and the same people who said you smell like curry now use your elaichi and dalcini to help their businesses flourish. But you know better. You know that chai, tea, and latte all mean the same thing. And you know in your heart that chai, on its own, in its truest, most simple form, is enough. Welcome back to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. I'm Selena Godden and we're here in my kitchen with Nikita Gill. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to see your lovely face again. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much. And it's so lovely to see you, Selena. Oh. It's made my day. Oh, it's made my life. <laughs> so um, anyone that's new to Nikita, Nikita Gill is a British Indian writer and artist living in the south of England with a huge online following. Her words have captivated hearts and minds all over the world. Nikita is ambassador for National Poetry Day and is a regular speaker at literary events. Nikita... Um, I don't even know where to begin. Your books include Great Goddesses, Wild Embers, Fierce Fairy Tales. Your soul is a 
river, your heart is the sea, slam, where hope comes from. But the book that I've got here sitting in front of me is The Girl and the Goddess. It is a beautiful book. So many different styles and feelings and voices in there. It's very you, it's very hopeful, it's very beautiful. It comes from a place of such light and it was a joy to have it, find it um, on my doormat and to have it in my possession and I love it. Thank you. Okay, goodbye. <laughs> That's the end of the interview. No, I'm going to, quite seriously though. Um, let's let's do a proper interview. Although we are friends, I'm going to I'm going to try and be a bit more professional. When did you decide to become a writer? What I mean is, was there a moment when you realised this was who you are and what you will do with your life on Earth? Um, I was 12 years old. I remember very well as well because. My grandfather used to tell me a lot of stories from when he was young. And we have um, a history like with partition and 1984, where there was a, the 1984, but there was like a Sikh genocide in India. And it's a very traumatic history. And the only people that can tell me that history now are my grandparents. And the older that they were getting, the more nervous I was getting that we were gonna lose those stories. And so I put his story down, the one, which happened during partition. And my mom saw it, she really loved it. And she sent it to someone, you know, because she she's, one of the things that my mom has done for me is that she wanted people to read her daughter. She's so proud of me. She wanted people to read her little daughter's work. And someone liked it from, they were a journalist and they happened to publish it in one of the national newspapers because it's just a 12 year old story about her grandfather so that's when I knew I was like I have to I want to be a writer that's what I want to do with my life oh, that's so beautiful so the latest book um can you tell me that just for anyone can you just give and get tell anyone just like roughly where are we going with this book the girl and the goddess to me it just conjures up just by the title alone, it's, 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 I'm not going to say any more. You, you tell, you tell. <laughs> so The Girl and the Goddess is a novel in verse, and I'm really excited about it because it's my debut novel in verse, and it had to be like this. And when I say that, I mean this is a really personal story. It's a story of a little girl called Paro who is Kashmiri, and to be Kashmiri is a really political thing, and it always has been. And against a backdrop of war and terrorism and partition, which was the um, partition basically that separated India and Pakistan into two separate countries and the violence that it caused. And we follow this little girl through her life and the people that come into her life who help her, but also the women in her family that she has such a close bond and relationship with, which is her mother and her grandmother and those bonds between women and female friendship. And you see her go through her life and, and navigate all of these things, all whilst talking about the effects of colonialism on a little girl when she's studying at school, how history is like physics. It's not like fiction where you can just turn a page and walk away. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. So, so can you give us a little teaser? Can you read us a little bit from yes, the book? Yes, of please, course. Please, please. Um, I'm going to read one of my favourite poems from the book. It's called Mama. Mama is fire, is a goddess without her powers in a world of masculinity gone awry, is mystical despite them trying to tell her she is not. Mama is the second word I learn, though she is prouder of my first because I named God. Mama treats my father's parents with kindness, even though they treat her with spitefulness. 
calls me her miracle in a world that has let her down with a thousand little indignities, reads me stories of Jhansi Ki Rani and the goddess Durga eliminating greed before fairy tales of Panchatantra. Mama says, Paro, you will not have to fight like I did because I will fight for you. Says, I married a better man than, your fa- than my father ever was and I did it for you so you could grow. Mama doesn't let anyone discipline me under the premise of one day she will be a wife. Mama teaches me early. Despite what they will try to teach you, girl is not a dirty word. Girl is power. Girl is fury. Girl is never give up. The world cannot break me. Oh, so lovely. Thank you. Oh, so... When you're reading books, you learn a lot. So, And also, I find when you're writing books, you learn a lot. What did you learn when writing this book? What did this book teach you? I think what it taught me to do was to be closer to my roots and my family, but also how when you write something very personal, it can also be a very universal experience. And it's interesting to see reactions now from readers who are so different and have had very different childhoods from me coming up to me and telling me, You know, I know this is a story about a little queer South Asian girl in India, but I saw myself in it. And that is so beautiful because I wrote a story which, you know, I thought only I could relate to. And it turns out other people can relate to, too. So. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, So your discipline, let's talk about that. I mean, your ability to just keep going to just keep making work and also work that's so rich and so filled with so much hope how do you keep motivated how do you find hope and courage just in your own life where is hope so I think for me my hope lies in in other people like today sitting in with you and like listening to this beautiful show and the excitement in your voices when you're talking about the things that you love and for me, that's where hope lives, you know. It's it's looking at people when they're talking about the things that they love. And that's when people are at their most beautiful, in my eyes. And li- it's little things like that. Like when I went out into your garden and I was lis- looking at the flowers that you're growing and nurturing and nourishing. It was just such a beautiful and rich experience for me. And that's where I find hope, Selena. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Do you like my roses? <laughs> So much. There is a wonderful garden. I like every time we've come here throughout lockdown, we've just seen it grow and grow and grow. It's gorgeous. Oh, I like growing tomatoes. Um, okay. Um, do you have? Okay, this is like. Do you have hidden messages or hidden secrets in your books? Are there any in jokes? Are there any? Do you like hide little hidden things that only certain people would know that that's a nod to something? Yeah, sometimes I do. I think when my mum and my grandmum read this book, they're going to see lots of things that we talked about when when you know when I was growing up and you know and they will understand what I mean because they'll understand the depth of it but I think that readers would also get how much it means to me mm-hmm. you know or it's 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 a hard one as well because you don't want to exclude the people who are reading the work but at the same time you want to pay homage to all the people that you love mm-hmm. through the work and this book is it is the most important book I've ever written And it's such a personal piece of work that I feel like I couldn't not do that. I could not send out nods to everyone that has been such a massive part of my life. (laughs) That's so beautiful. 
your books are so filled with magic and spirituality. Can you talk about that a little bit? Can you talk, tell our listeners about your connection to magic, the role of the spiritual in your work? So I'm such a big believer in the divine feminine and spirituality and how people access spirituality because spirituality in itself is a place of love and hope. Like you don't have to be religious to be spiritual. We all have places that we go to inside our hearts when we are in pain to comfort ourselves, right? And that's what I'm really interested in. I'm interested in the language of the soul. And a lot of my work kind of comes from thinking about how everyone has a different language to their soul and how do we build on that? How do we look at each other and nurture that in each other and nourish that in each other instead of look, you know, in a world which is constantly divided, how do we unify ourselves by listening to the languages of each other's souls? Mm. That's so beautiful. Ah, so it's been lockdown. It's been a horrendous year. It's been a horrendous, horrendous year for everyone. How has 2020 been for you? How has that um, sort of daily impending doom <laughs> affected your work and your work process and, and kind of what you're, what you're doing on the day to day? So I think this has been such a difficult year for so many of us. I think all of us are struggling. And for me, it was poetry. It's always been poetry that like brings me back to being more grounded in myself. Like, Selena, your poems have kept me going through lockdown. Like, especially on, like, my worst mental health days, I would listen to your elegant and beautiful language. And I especially love listening to your poems in your own words. And that's one of the things that really kept me going. And it, this is it, like, nourishing and feeding people with our work. And that is what you did for me. And I love Thank that. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank for that. you. Aww. <laughs> Aww. Okay, look, I'm gonna, you're making me all emotional. Can you just play, uh, read, know, play one of your records? <laughs> play one of your records from your book. Yeah. <laughs> read, read a section from your book. Can yes. you share some more for the listeners, please? Absolutely. So uh, I call my grandmother Nani, and so does Paro in the book. Tonight's tale from Nani. My father's father grew forests. With his bare hands, he nurtured the earth as he planted sapling after sapling. People said that the goddess Aryani guided his hands, goddess of forests and deer and rabbits and wolves and all things wild and free. He said she spoke to him through tree bark, whispering wisdom to him through his fingers. People are trees, he used to say. They are not, my father would disagree, because trees stay. But they both agreed, standing in a forest, Bade Papa planted all by himself, that forests are families. As long as the canopy remains unbroken, every tree is protected. As long as the roots grow deep into the earth and entwine with each other like they are holding hands, they will remain in some form, some shape, even if they are cut down and broken. You cannot destroy a family even if you try, even through war. Some part of them always remains. 
Oh, so beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, so that's The Girl and the Goddess, and it's out which, when's it out? 1st of October. The 1st of October, um, and so get your hands on that. Now, before um, we, um, we close this interview, I really want you to tell me a bit more about Slam. Yes. You've put out an anthology of amazing poets, so can you tell the listeners about Slam? That, that came out at the beginning of September, right? Yes. So it came out on the 3rd of September, and I'm really excited about Slam, because Slam, you're going to want to hear this is a collection of these incredibly powerful uh, poets that have worked through performance. And the idea behind it is all poetry is real poetry. There is a real kind of snobbery and elitism in poetry where it's like, oh, page poets and stage poets mm-hmm. and Instagram poets, and it it's all works as a division. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, a lot of the places of hope that I find come from performance poets. Um, and listening to poems and listening to a poet's voice when they speak. So we went out and we found the most talented, amazing poets, and we put them into this book. And what's really brilliant about it is their work translates onto the page as beautifully as it translates onto the stage. Mm -hmm. And this is what this book is kind of about. Each poet introduces their poem. They talk about why they wrote the poem. And the most brilliant thing about it was the audiobook. We got everyone to come in and read out their own poems on the audiobook. And the audiobook is styled like an actual slam because I come on as MC and I introduce all these poets and we all like kind of call to each other in our work. And it's just an amazing, amazing experience. If you're interested in looking at modern poetry and like, you know, listening to modern poetry especially if you're quite young and wanting to be a poet this is the book for you amazing so who who's in slam who did you which poets are in there we had the most amazing guest stars like Dean Atta and Sophia Tucker and Raymond Antrobus and then we had a lot of up and coming brand new poets oh, good. um and we had like uh, Essen and we had Duranka Pereira and we had like these brilliant brilliant voices that I just strongly encourage everyone to just pick up this book and just experience the richness and diversity within the book oh that sounds wonderful well that's Nikita Gill here in my kitchen having a cup of tea and I think we should have a bit of music now so I can stop being so emotional <laughs> thank you very much
was Lonely People by America, and this program is for all the lonely people. Thank you so much for tuning in to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. We are roaring with you. I want to say thank you to our special guest, Nikita Gill, here in my kitchen. Hey. It's hey. really lovely. Yay. It's so wonderful to see your face again. And um, thank you to Oli Basquiano for the interview earlier today on the phone. Thanks for that. And thank you to all our wonderful contributors for your readings and excerpts that you've provided for us. That's James McDermott, Kit Dewal, David Keenan, Helen Calcutt, Victoria McNulty, Jasmine Gardozi, Nia Rika Manda. And am I leaving anyone out, guys? No, I think that's great. And you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Roaring Twenties Radio. The Twenties is 20S and all previous episodes as a podcast in the usual places. We're going to end today's show with a track that um, I wrote at the beginning of lockdown with um, Anna Phoebe. This uh, poem is called While Justice Waits and this one's for Breonna Taylor. There they go again. Filling your mouth with their name There they go again Adding more weight to your burden There they go again Giving you all the anxiety Whilst telling you not to panic When the panic is rooted in centuries of There they go again There they go again There they go again Contradicting their own rules or double speak, double standards. There they go again. Your dead are statistics, your ghosts live in hashtags. There they go again. Getting away with murder, but calling it anything else. There they go again. Doing nothing as you're vulnerable and sick and the dying need all your love and care and your living need all of your focus energy and time there they go again filling your plate with their jobs and the work they should do as your elected leaders there they go again dominating your thoughts so no work can get done there they go again Grimacing on the front page, hogging the limelight with this theatre of performative cruelty. There they go again, suffocating light and hope, like a pillow held fast over the face of the kicking and struggling truth. There they go again, consuming all the oxygen and rewriting history. There they go again, like it's all about them. But it is because of them, and it is in spite of them. There they go again, obscuring the facts, blurring the edges, blinkering the horse, filtering the picture. And it is not the names of the dead, nor the names of the nurse, not the name of the innocent, but their name in your mouth. How can it be 
that when you wake in the night, wailing and mourning and hurting, they are marching on your tongue, they are renting your insomnia. There they go again, using your anguish as garnish, using your defence as attack, using your fear to divide you, using your rage to pass draconian laws, using your pain to sell shit back to you, using your grief to decorate newspapers, using your anger to kill you. Because there they go again, casting an ass in the lead role, the wealthy politicians in the spotlight, the hideous clown gets top billing, the monster as the headline act, your horror gets a walk-on part, your morning cries are extras, your fury is the chorus line, your humanity the supporting cast, and justice waits in the wings, and justice waits in the wings, there they go again, Justice waits in the wings. <laughs>